This episode is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free in the App Store. Did the early Middle Ages really exist? No, the early Middle Ages did not exist. Dr. Hans Ulrich Niemitz. Well, case closed. Or rather, case opened, as the, well, case may be. These are the words that began a paper written by Dr. Niemitz in 1995. This question in itself, he writes, and more so the answer, is surprising, to say the least. Well, he's not wrong about that. But what might be more surprising is that he's not alone in his thinking. And more surprising still, he may be right. Niemitz, and probably more importantly his colleague, Herbert Illig, have championed the hypothesis that our current Gregorian calendar is off by 297 years. Time that has just vanished, or more accurately, was never there to begin with. Phantom time. The missing years were supposedly part of the early Middle Ages, but according to Illig and Niemitz, they became part of a historical conspiracy involving narcissistic emperors and even a pope. And as a bitter cherry on top of it all, they even claim that one of the most important figures in European history, Charlemagne, was fabricated whole cloth. Records, dating methods, and archaeology of conventional history fail when scrutinized, and many signs point to evidence which shows civilization may not be as old as we think. Are we almost two decades into the 21st century? Or should we be celebrating the beginning of the Roaring Twenties of the 18th century in the year 1721? We're casting a light to see just how dark the early Middle Ages were as we search for phantom time on this episode of Blurry Photos. everyone, welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Hope everyone's doing well. Thanks for your patience as I put this episode together. And I know many of you are waiting for the Limp Mansion episode where I stayed at that haunted house. And that one I'm planning on getting to next episode. Still lots of reading to do, but the goal is to have it for episode 214. Lots of stuff to get to in this episode, though. Not only are we going to learn about a pretty fascinating and, I would venture, not well-known historical conspiracy theory, I also have the results of this year's miscrypted Contest Finals, as voted by you, the listener. That also means we'll find out which one of you guys wins the sweepstakes for a prize pack, along with a runner-up and a miscongeniality. Thanks to everybody who participated, and a huge thanks to Jordan K. Morris for making the art for each contestant this year, as well as a shirt design for last year's winner, Hoover the Talking Seal. Make sure to check out that design at blurryphotos.threadless.com and find Jordan's work at Jordan underscore K underscore Morris on Instagram. I'll be announcing the winners after puns, so make sure to stick around. But first... Let's talk about this weird concept 
where whole centuries of recorded history have supposedly never happened. It sounds pretty incredible, until you learn that it's based on some thought-provoking observations. How in the world could almost 300 years just up and vanish like a fart in the wind? Well, according to the theory's champion, Herbert Illig, they never existed in the first place. In this episode, I'll be taking a look at the concept of phantom time, including what its many claims are, Illig and Nemitz's reasoning behind them, and if there's any validity to it all. So grab your clumps of sod, peasant's cap, and probably ergot-contaminated hunks of bread. We're going back to ancient Egypt. Wait, what? The idea of suspicious historical timelines has been around for a while. Is that what we're doing in ancient Egypt? Well, it may not be that old. Egypt plays a significant role in the inspiration and examples of what's called revised chronology, or sometimes new chronology, depending on whose theory it is. We start with Russian-born psychiatrist and historical scholar, Emmanuel Velikovsky. Seeking to reconcile gaps in the archaeological and historical records with catastrophes and biblical accounts, Velikovsky proposed revisions to mainstream history, which eliminated half a millennia in order to line up with events depicted in the Bible and provide an answer to dark ages of Greek and Mesopotamian history. Egypt's chronology was on the chopping block, as it was fast and conventional dating didn't seem to match the book of Exodus. He proposed a theory that basically said several centuries never actually happened between the Old Kingdom of Egypt, around 2680 BCE, and the Ptolemaic Dynasty, which began around 300 BCE. Also, historical figures were named differently in the Bible, as in Queen Hatshepsut, actually being the Queen of Sheba. This very nicely welcomed biblical events with open timeline arms. Of course, if I were to say there's a conspiracy in aviation because the Hindenburg exploded and the next day Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared, oh, by the way, you have to get rid of 77 years, but that's okay because then the conspiracy makes sense, you'd probably be inclined to give me the squintiest of stares. Velikovsky's works in the 1950s through the 70s inspired a number of people to question conventional teachings. He himself had no doubt come across and been influenced by the works of 18th century French Jesuit Jean Hardouin, who believed that ancient Greek and Roman cultures never existed, and all classical works were forged by 13th century Benedictine monks. And both probably had an impact on the works of Russian mathematician Anatoly Fomenko. You know what? We're talking about all these Russians. I probably should have led with this. Dr. Anatoly Fomenko is a mathematical genius. As a historian, well, he's got some ideas. According to him, there have only been four sources of historical knowledge, and only the first is the true source. The rest have 
copied and mixed things up so much that history has become four times as long as it should be. That's right. Human history is but centuries old, beginning around what we know as the 10th century CE. This was deduced by his genius at math, taking ancient astronomy and the writings of Ptolemy to conclude the current chronology doesn't jive with the heavens, but his does. And that, according to him, means that the Roman to Byzantine to English pig dogs timeline of world powers is false, as it should be Roman to Byzantine to Russian magnificent heroes and glorious ascension number one superpower sexy cool era timeline. This was achieved by medieval scribes accidentally, or purposefully, screwing up the historical sources when they copied them, possibly for validating biblical events. Because, let's face it, everything that's happened in recorded history could have happened in 1,000 years, culminating in the grandiose prominence and wisdom of the Russian Empire leading us into a golden age of civilization in the first millennium. I've mentioned a couple folks here who have some unconventional theories of historical chronology in order to lay some groundwork for the meat of this roast beast of an episode. People have thought about and questioned conventional thinking, some with more plausibility than others, nonetheless clearing the skies for similar ideas. Now let's talk about a man who has followed in those clear skies to fly right in the face of accepted history. Herbert Illig was born in Bavaria in 1947 and went on to study German language and Viennese culture before becoming editor of some journals dedicated to revised chronology and then publishing his own called Zeitensprunge, or Time Jumps. Following an interest in chronology, he published a few books and articles on revised chronologies at least up to 2013. Illig who is one fancy robe and skullcap away from being Dr. Chaotica, was most definitely influenced by the theories of Velikovsky, and it was his interest in Egyptian culture that caused his world and Velikovsky's to collide. In his own words, many periods have left so frighteningly little evidence that we must ask, did this particular period ever exist, or did it originate on the desks of scholars? In my study of ancient Egypt, I learned that entire periods may be written up in books, even though they have not left any traces on earth, and more importantly, in the earth. I was thus forewarned when I started looking at the history of the Middle Ages. Illig was inspired to look into the Middle Ages when a friend phoned him after attending a conference on forgeries. The two apparently discussed forgeries that were said to have been created 250 to 500 years before they were necessary and it got Illig's jimmies all rustling. How would it have to be written so that it will fit the daily politics of a future era? He later said, If the monk in his scriptorium wasn't a clairvoyant, then I can provide only an ad hoc explanation. The moment when this forgery was produced and the moment when the forgery had an effect were perhaps much closer to each other than has been thought previously. However, in that case, we would need to shorten the timeline. At this point in our discussion, we reach the point of testability, 
the mathematically comprehensible calendar calculation. Illig ended up gathering some friends together to scrutinize this weirdness he saw with the conventional timeline of the European Middle Ages. I'll come back to this calendar remark in a bit, but so as not to get too bogged down in the minutia, I'll try and summarize the findings of Illig and his friends, Angelica Muller, Hans Ulrich Niemitz, Manfred Zeller, Christoph Marx, and Uwe Topper, or as I like to call them, the League of Extraordinary Mentalmen. Together, they saw a historical chronology rife with red flags and sought to point out some inconsistencies with what is held to be true and what is actually observed. To them, the Dark Ages were dark indeed, like vapid holes of non-existence because they never happened. Nemitz wrote, We looked for gaps in social reports and publications, also for periods of stagnation or strange events repeated in similar manner after approximately 300 years. I only refer to some of a great number of puzzles, a gap in the history of building in Constantinople, 558-908 AD, a gap in the doctrine of faith, especially the gap in the evolution of theory and meaning of purgatory, 600 AD to 1100 AD, a 300-year-long reluctant introduction of farming techniques, three-acre system, horse with cumin, and of war techniques, the stira. A gap in the mosaic art, 565 to 1018 AD. A repeated beginning of the German orthography, etc., etc. The puzzles of historiography led the way, pointing out again and again the gap, which we soon termed phantom time. Here is a handful of the main tenets of Phantom Time. The forgeries mentioned gave them a starting point. If there were several medieval manuscripts and documents found to be forgeries, what else could not be trusted? Suddenly the sources we have from the early Middle Ages are backed against a wall, their validity in dispute. Illig said, There are various methods for testing whether a period is real or fictitious. First. Written source will have to be held against written source. Then architectural finds can be compared with architectural history. Above all, the existing architecture will be compared with the existing written sources. With certainty, the best method is the comparison of archaeological finds with written sources. Half of that method in doubt, in looking for artifacts, bones, ruins, and remains, Illig et al. found that there's actually scant archaeological evidence from the second half of the first millennium. They reckoned from about the 7th to the 10th century that has been found slash preserved, something seemed fishy. Nemitz wrote, Historians and archaeologists must maintain that no civil town building existed in this period and that only church buildings survived from that time. To justify this, they must assert that at that time, towns were not central marketplaces. Illig pushed further. He noticed an oddity in architecture that seemed to scream inconsistency in the current accepted timeline. Beautifully constructed Roman-style buildings in 10th century Western Europe. The last gasps of the Roman Empire are generally placed around the end of the 5th century CE. It was a little far-fetched to Illig to think that Roman techniques were not used, but their knowledge retained for several hundred years, 
only to suddenly explode in one glorious example, the Aachen Palatine Chapel in Germany, part of Charlemagne's own palace. Could this mean the Roman era was closer than we thought? It's getting a little weird, these inconsistencies. Illig said, The Aachen Palatine Chapel appears to be a masterpiece without a predecessor. Nothing the likes of it was seen for hundreds of years before or after its supposed construction in 805 CE, due to its massive dome which was very thick and unbelievably heavy. Domes just weren't made that way. They were made with lightweight materials. Until a couple centuries after Charlemagne supposedly had built it, of course. And speaking of Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, the Frankish king, conqueror of the Saxons, the Avars, and the Lombards, ruler of Bohemia, invader of Moorish Spain, but let's not talk about that one, and surprise Holy Roman Emperor, Charlemagne, who introduced administrative and educational reforms to his kingdom, consolidated and standardized Christianity, sparked an era of art, learning, and scholarship known as the Carolingian Renaissance, an ice-ass cold sunk a three at the buzzer to win a pickup game against the Pope. Yes, that, Charlemagne. Well, Illig says, forget him. Did you hear that list? No one is capable of all that. He's larger than life. He's a medieval Superman. Illig says he didn't exist. In my book, I have collected more than a hundred of the great Charles characteristics. This makes an extraordinary list. He was his own minister of agriculture. He was the physical as well as the spiritual ancestor for half of Europe. He was the sole ruler to whom omniscience was ascribed. He was a classical philologist, architect, astronomer, builder, and so on. Charlemagne has no historical background. He is an invented figure. This conclusion is compelled by the lack of finds, to which I would add that there would be an absolute absence of finds if scholars did not strive so hard to attribute any available works of art or objects of daily use to the Carolingian era. Damn. More like Charlotte Slain. Surely, you must be asking, surely we can prove that the early Middle Ages existed through dating techniques, right? Well, Illig and his crew thought that might be the case as well, but they hit on a snag or two. The two best methods we apparently have to check the age of things are radiometric and dendrochronological carbon-14 dating and tree rings. These are great for approximating dates, but they still have margins of error big enough to drive Charlemagne's mom through. Oh man, stop dunking on Charlemagne, Illig! These methods were too unreliable to Illig and his crew, or at least not good enough to explain the huge historical gaps they were starting to see. They even pointed out that some researchers apparently wrote that this kind of dating could lead to, quote, unfavorable circumstances, i.e., errors that need to be covered up, possibly. They argued there's not nearly enough samples of wood from that era to be certain for dating accurately, and that a few dendrochronologists have had errors or fudged their results. Therefore, it's an inaccurate science. Not to mention the 
deceit involved in order to preserve the results those scientists were after. Nemitz wrote, The most common objection to this idea says that methods of scientific dating are infallible and beyond the danger of circular reasoning. Of these methods, the best known are RC-14 and dendrochronology. As RC-14 is now calibrated by and therefore dependent on dendrochronology, it is insignificant for the medieval period. But the thing that pushed them over the edge of incredulity to plunge into the dark and frigid waters of conspiracy was math. Calendar math. The worst math there is. Now the air in this section is going to get pretty thin, so fair warning, you might go a little cross-eyed and dizzy. And in case there's a loss of cabin pressure, make sure to place your alcoholic beverage directly in your face first before helping your friend or family member with theirs. We currently use the Gregorian calendar system, so named after Pope Gregory XIII instituted it in 1582 to replace the Julian system, instituted by Julius Caesar in 45 BCE. Illig stated that this was done to correct the Julian calendar as it had accumulated 10 extra days due to the Julian year being 10.8 minutes too long. However, Illig found that the start of the Gregorian calendar in 1582 and the start of the Julian calendar in 46 BCE meant that 1,627 years had passed, which meant there should have been a 13-day discrepancy. If they only skipped 10 days, that would have meant 1,257 years had passed. And what is 1582 minus 1257? Don't worry, we've done the math for you. It's 325. How did Caesar introduce his calendar 300 years after his death? He didn't. It wasn't corrected correctly. So there's 300 years, give or take, that are out there in the ether. Enter Sylvester and the Emperors. Illig and party don't know why 300 years have been shoved into history, but they came up with a pretty good idea. According to Phantom Time chronology, around the year 700, Pope Sylvester II and Holy Roman Emperor Otto III conspired to make Otto's reign happen at the turn of the millennium. Illig said, The motive, at least in the West, was apparently an eschatological one. Otto III felt that he was Christ's representative and vicar on earth, who would ring in the last 1,000 years. For according to early Christian belief, in analogy to the seven days of creation, there would be seven days of the world, of 1,000 years each. And the seventh day of the world would begin according to the calculation of the day with the year 1,000. So Pope Sylvester II, Otto III, and his cousin, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII, began a campaign of rewriting the date to be closer to the year 1000, adding in centuries of faked documents, destroying old ones, and fabricating the entire character of Charlemagne as the ideal ruler of the West. It may sound crazy, but keep in mind, the clergy and some aristocrats were the only ones able to read and write at the time. Which meant, he who controlled the manuscript spice controlled the medieval universe. Sure enough, the annals of history show Otto III reigning from 996 to 1002. 
CE. All this points to one thing. 297 years of history as we know it has been fabricated, and historians and scholars are perpetuating a lie because they either don't want to believe the truth or just blindly accept the historical convention. And those that have figured it out might be complicit in covering it up. Niemitz wrote, The few existing stratigraphies of German towns give evidence of the phantom time. In Frankfurt am Main, archaeological excavations did not find any layer for the period between 650 and 910 AD. Nevertheless, it has been assumed that something has been found in order to avoid empty centuries, which is inconceivable. Thus, the absent period was construed by layers, composed of waste and ceramic fragments from other locations, which were spread to fill in the gap and support known chronology. Illig said, From my point of view, Aachen was built at the same time as Speyer II, shortly after 1100. Whichever view is accepted, Aachen loses its distinction as a Carolingian building. This means that this period loses its best building, and the most important city of the Frankish Empire loses its ecclesiastical heart. With the loss of this dome alone, the tradition of Charlemagne's giant empire crumbles to dust. Whoa. More like au revoir, Lamaine. That was so much harder to say than it sounded. Illig sums it up thusly. The main problem can be summarized as follows. Buildings, finds, and written documents from the early Middle Ages are in a fundamental contradiction to each other, a conflict that cannot be resolved within conventional chronology. Oh, that naughty Charlemagne. So what are we working with here? It seems easy to discount almost any conspiracy that gets all up in the face of orthodoxy. I mean, teachings of the early Middle Ages have remained pretty constant for a long time, but Illig Nemitz and cohorts have managed to do something many conspiracists don't do. They have presented an argument grounded in reality, with specific examples to consider, and a loose but compelling motive. Questioning the status quo is fine. In fact, it's healthy and I'd tip the old hat to them for following up on their historical suspicions. Their ideas gained a fair bit of popularity in the 90s, at least in Germany, but when historian after historian rejected and ridiculed the concept, the phantom time fever faded feebly. Such is the fate of anyone, in any walk of life, when convention is challenged so extraordinarily. 
Nemitz even commented on this fact, saying, How can it be possible to discuss the thesis of the phantom time in the scientific community without being discriminated against as some von Daniken of the Middle Ages? We're going to have to get Eric von Daniken a flashlight for having so much shade thrown at him. So what do you do when you basically have the whole of academia slamming doors in your face? Illig has, impressively, stuck to his guns over the years. And so have historians. But what if he's right? What if the perfect storm of cultural dynamics, theocratic dominion, and unbridled narcissism converged to literally fabricate a chunk of world history? I don't know, man. I don't have an argument for this one. Just kidding. Let's go over several arguments against it. First of all, yes, there have been forgeries throughout history. I'll give him that. Does it mean history is a lie? No. We have somewhere in the ballpark of 7,000 manuscripts from the early Middle Ages. According to his theory, they're all fraudulent. I feel like the more items we have from the era, the less likely they could be forgeries, owing to the bigger data set. But that's a pretty weak argument on my part, so let me address the archaeology. What has been found and considered from the early Middle Ages is not a lot, especially compared to the previous Roman period. But things have been found. Coin hoards, burials, jewelry, clothing, ceramics, mounds, ruins, and weaponry. Architecturally, the Aachen Palatine Chapel was surely unique and impressive, but it was not out of nowhere. Roman style wasn't arbitrarily lost. In fact, Aachen, Germany was settled by Romans in the 2nd century and occupied until the early 5th century. The designs were right there. The Byzantine Empire is considered the approximate successor of the Roman Empire and built upon the Roman style. The chapel wasn't a masterpiece out of time. The Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy, built in 547, was a Byzantine masterpiece inspired by Roman architecture. A 9th century Swiss manuscript known as the Plan of St. Gaul has been found showing a very detailed, very innovative plan of a monastic complex. St. Michael's Church in Hiddelsheim, Germany in 1022 is considered a masterpiece. Incredible works still happened. The chapel wasn't some anomaly, as Illig suggests. He argues that the Palatine Dome is an example of anachronistic architecture because it was so thick and previous domes weren't as impressive and hadn't been used since the Roman period. But domes hadn't been forgotten in history. Romans perfected it. Byzantines continued it. Justinian churches, the Hagia Sophia, hello, and Hell's Bells. By the 8th century, the dome was synonymous with Islamic architecture. Arguing thickness at this point is scraping the barrel for excuses, in my opinion. Saying data methods aren't trustworthy is a bit misleading. Carbon dating and dendrochronology have their flaws and don't give us exact specific dates, but show me something better. And if one scientist messed up research or falsified data, that's awful and stupid and disappointing. But it doesn't invalidate that entire field of science. 
I think the forest you have to look for out of the trees here, and maybe one of the biggest takeaways, is how Eurocentric a concept this is. Don't forget, there's a whole planet that history was happening on as well. Inventing 300 years of European history is convenient for Europe, but what about the Tang Dynasty in China, the Islamic Caliphate, the Pratihara Empire in India, the Mayans? A large portion of medieval history would have to have been rewritten and fabricated and spread around. A huge task. Middle Eastern and Asian history would have to have been altered as well, which is an even bigger task. The birth of Muhammad and spread of Islam to Spain happened around this period. Surely Illig isn't saying Islam was an idea stirring in the Middle East for a few years, then suddenly a religion in Spain after that. Other cultures' histories line up with conventional chronology. Want to know how we know? Astronomical observations. Chinese, Muslim, and Indian scholars observed eclipses, supernovas, conjunctions, even Halley's Comet. Medieval observations match timelines with ones that survived prior to 600 CE. Eclipses seen by our boy Pliny in 59 CE, Plutarch in 71, and Firmicus in 334. How about Superman? I mean Charlemagne. Was he actually too large for life? He was if you add a thick layer of hyperbole to his character. Look, he did a lot of stuff and brought many changes to society, including education reform, had the Catholic Church regulated, meaning an educated clergy, a uniform liturgy, all of which began a unification of Catholicism in Europe. He gathered the best and brightest at his court, promoted the arts, and helped stabilize a currency-based economy. He ushered in a pretty stellar era, even if it was at the point of a sword. Significant numbers of texts survive from the 9th century because of Charlemagne's archives at Aachen. And yes, one person could be capable of not being a self-serving D-bag as hard as that is to believe. Illig's theory would have you believe he's also designed and built the Palatine Chapel himself, as well as observed the heavens and fathered half of Europe's bloodlines. But the man couldn't even read. He got pissed when he tried learning and couldn't get it. In fact, he lost when trying to conquer Spain. It's in the Song of Roland. He was not perfect. He was just a natural leader who was effective at administering decent ideas. From a lecture by church historian Dr. Ryan Reeves. There was also during Charlemagne's time what historians call the Carolingian Renaissance. And the Carolingian Renaissance is a period of time in which some of the most significant intellectual minds of Europe were brought together by Charlemagne into his entourage so that intellectual activity and letters and arts and manuscripts and all of these things might flourish. Now, in today's world, we're used to seeing the arts as something that's more cosmetic or something that is not vital. We send our kids to school too often, I'm afraid, for the utility of getting them to college so that they can get out of our houses <laughs> and so that they can get jobs. But you have to remember that at a time in which intellectual engagement and thinking and process and the arts were not prescribed in society, for Charlemagne to take a noted interest in these things was as much to do with the preservation of knowledge and Roman culture as it was with the advancement of it. 
And the fact that there is a Carolingian Renaissance should really undermine in your minds the fact that this period of time is called the Dark Ages. It might be the Dark Ages in terms of its relationship to, say, the Renaissance in Italy in the 14th and 15th centuries. Or it might be the Dark Ages simply by the fact that some of the manuscripts and artifacts and some of the data that we would like as historians doesn't really exist in this period of time. That literacy rates are low and that there's just simply not much to draw on from a literary standpoint. But what we see in Charlemagne's reign is that there is actually a concerted effort in an attempt to ensure that the Roman culture, the Romanitas, the ways in which the old world had engaged in the life of the mind was going to continue. And there are all kinds of ways in which Charlemagne engaged in this renaissance. In terms of architecture, there were significant building campaigns. During the Frankish reigns from 768 until 855, there were at least 30 cathedrals and 417 monasteries built all around the Frankish empires. And that is not even to count the royal palaces and the palaces for the dukes and the comites that were in these regions as well. This is this period of significant building. In fact, today, if you were to go throughout Europe and you were to see all kinds of these medieval castles, not a few of them, at least in the areas of the Frankish empires, date back, at least portions of them date all the way back to this period of time. And let me put your mind to ease about the calendar situation. Pope Gregory fixed the calendar to be based around the vernal equinox, not to update the old Julian system. It did that, but his main reason was because Easter had slipped into summer and needed to be back in sync with the vernal equinox as dictated by the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE. Wait a minute. If they only skipped 10 days, that would have meant 1,257 years had passed. And what is 1582 minus 1257? Don't worry, we've done the math for you. It's 325. 325. 325. Oh, math, you coquettish little minx. And as far as anyone can tell, there's no conspiracy, no connection between Pope Gregory XIII and Pope Sylvester II, Emperor Constantine VII, and Otto III. Think about it. To orchestrate such a worldwide conspiracy, would not Otto III have then been larger than life? I don't think even Charlemagne could have pulled that one off. I doubt he would have wanted to. And you know why? Because he was Charlemagne. How much cherry-picking for confirmation bias was done for this theory? Probably not as much as the references to papers Illig and his buddies wrote themselves. No joke, Nemitz even cites himself in his own paper, multiple times. But they don't consider this a conspiracy theory. That scientists and historians didn't catch it, but an outsider did, points to a changing of the paradigms threatening all work by insiders up to that point. Thank goodness he didn't espouse a conceited outlook. 
Again, the seed of this idea came from Illig and Nemitz hearing about falsifications in medieval historical documents. Not every document from then is false, but it begged the question, what else could be false? I appreciate that sentiment. Though I don't think I'd go as far as saying the time period didn't exist, even with what seems like a couple corroborating ideas. To me, it's a bit like someone 1,000 years from now finding one of the new grade school textbooks that say man and dinosaur lived side by side, therefore there wasn't actually an industrial revolution. That's hyperbole, obviously, but my point is, questioning is healthy, but we can't be so ready to rage against the machine that we get trampled by the bulls on parade. It seems people have created an imaginary situation where, in their minds, civilization paused in 600 and magically resumed in 900. To them, that is absurd. Rightly so. But their only proof of this is that the archaeological record is sparse. Everything else is fable, including evidence to the contrary. To give you an example of similar thinking, Back in our episode on the Sphinx, we talked about how some people viewed the Great Pyramids as anomalies of architecture, that Egyptians had just been fiddle-farting around with tombs before then and neither fiddled nor farted with pyramids after. That's entirely wrong, as it completely ignores the progression of pyramid styles leading up to Khufu's megatomb. See the Step Pyramid of Josher, Bent and Red Pyramids of Sneferu, Sahure's Pyramid, Amenemhat, etc. What is happening is that people are taking the most unique or larger-than-life thing in question, say Charlemagne or the chapel at Aachen, and saying nothing compares to that thing for a while, therefore fake. Well, if lots of stuff compares to it, it wouldn't exactly be larger-than-life or unique. Maybe I'm missing the point. Anyone who supports this theory will no doubt say I'm missing the point, but that still doesn't prove the theory. We also have to remember the motivations behind these theories. Velikovsky had a decidedly Christian history one. Fominko had a foaming-at-the-mouth, rabid Russian nationalist agenda. Illig wants to go straight after paradigm changes. Always be wary of why someone might be posing an out-there theory. One more thing to think about. If our society collapsed from social or economic disaster, how would survivors living in a stable future civilization look on the post-collapse world? Would they say the surviving society was a bunch of idiots, or that it was a dark age because technology and progress stopped for a while? Humanity would still be smart enough to design rockets and Burj Khalifas and holograms of Tupac, We'd just be busy, I don't know, trying not to die. Getting food and water and staying safe take priority over programming a robot to not fall over when you kick it. Unless the reason you're in a post-disaster world is because we designed robots that didn't fall over when we kicked them and they started kicking back. Point is, these years we call the Dark Ages, the years that were supposedly invented in phantom time, were quite bright if you know where to look. The tenuous social and political landscape made civilization have to focus inward for a bit, but it was still there, 
and innovation still happened, including adoption of the horseshoe and horse collar, wind and water mills, and so on, which ushered in mechanization and led to more innovation. The idea of Dark Ages came from Renaissance scholars who basically ridiculed anything that came before them because they thought so highly of themselves. So don't buy into the cynical moniker of Dark Ages. And certainly don't buy into the thought that these periods were dark because they never existed. Hey, remember when I said Illigs and Nemitz's conspiracy was surprising because it might be right? Might, in this case, meant a very small chance. Practically none. That's right. I misled you for dramatic effect. And for that, I very humbly say, you're welcome. For when it comes to this phantom, looks like we can see right through it. That's phantom time in a mistrustful, medieval, missing nutshell. There's a problem in the timeline of the show that some people think is suspicious. Apparently one section is out of place, as it has no precursor or successor that is even close in similarity. That's right, some people think you couldn't possibly go from nutshell to pun. There was once a period of history where the Holy Roman Empire had its citizens pay taxes that went toward a national health insurance program, so medieval medical services were free for everyone. Unfortunately, it didn't last long, but it's come to be known as the Medicarolingian Renaissance. There was once a larger-than-life historical figure who was able to conquer many lands and through his cunning became ruler of a mighty kingdom. Unfortunately, his ideas for society were cruel and regressive and he caused much hardship for all the people of Agrabah until he was finally overthrown by a simple boy from the streets. Some say he was fictional, but history has never been the same since Jafar Lamain. Thanks for joining me on this trip into a historical conspiracy. Again, I'll be back next episode with the Limp Mansion. That's the goal right now. And it might take me a couple weeks to get that one put together still, but should be a good one. Well worth the wait. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the culmination of the 2018 Miss Cryptid Contest. The finalists this year were... The Loveland Frog, the Coranda Jellyfish, and the Drop Bear. I'd like to thank everyone once again for voting and participating this year. It's been a great contest, had lots of fun. So without further ado, the winner of the 2018 Miss Cryptid Contest, going home with their very own Golden Goatman Trophy, is... The Drop Bear.
Congrats, Drop Bear. Congrats, Australia. And I know many of you think this was a runaway, but in fact, it was the closest vote in miscrypted history. Eked out a very narrow victory over the Loveland Frog. Less than five votes separated the winner from the runner-up. And Coranda Jellyfish had a very respectable third-place finish. A very spirited final. So now let us get to the winner of the 2018 Sweepstakes. The winner of the 2018 Miss Cryptid Contest Sweepstakes is... Justin. Possibly Justin W. Congratulations, Justin. I will be sending you an email a day or so after the episode comes out to confirm. And now for the first time, I'm going to draw for a runner-up who will win a t-shirt and some swag. The runner-up is... Oranya In. Sorry if I'm not getting the pronunciation right. Orania or Aurania. I'll be sending you an email as well. And finally, for the miscongeniality, who wins a little bit of swag for participating. Dylan B. It's Dylan B. Well, congratulations, everybody. Congratulations, Justin, Orania, Dylan. I'll send you guys an email in a couple days, and I'll get that prize pack and all the swag squared away with you. Thanks again, everybody. Miss Cryptid's always a ton of fun. Don't miss out on any news or other fun stuff that's going on with the podcast. Head on over to Blurry Photos Facebook page and like it, and make sure to follow it on there so you get all the updates that's happening. Also, follow me on Twitter at Blurry underscore Photos. I'm also on Instagram and YouTube, Blurry Photos Podcast, there. Check out the merchandise in the blurryphotos.threadless.com store and sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash blurryphotos. Big shout out for buying me coffee on coffee, ko-fi.com slash blurryphotos. Shout out to Emily and John, listeners since 2014. Damn, son. Thank you guys so much for buying me coffees on there. I love it. Also, more content for you guys. I was recently a guest on the Zing This podcast with Zinger and Ellie. We talked about the Harry Potter Prisoner of Azkaban movie. Had a fun time with them, fellow Dark Lords, and also my muffed movies of Jurassic Park with Dark Mark Soloff and General Ironicus wrapped up over on the Blastro podcast feed. So check that one out as well. And I think that'll do it for this episode of Blurry Photos. I have been David Florantum Time. Till next time, everybody. 